Pittsburgh. She was sharing with us about the architecture and about the colors and the poems. And Marcus is really self-controlled. He was holding himself together. But when you guys that know me, I just lost it. I had to turn around and I started, you know, my I started crying because I was laughing so hard. And she was like in her own world, the Saint Petersburg, and she just kept on going. Oh, by God's grace, that day ended and we were able to come home. Oh, good to be back. It was a joy serving with Marcus. Just a powerful a man of God and a preacher and teacher of scripture. It was like we're doing tag team wrestling. You know, I'd teach and I'd tag out and Marcus would tag in and he'd preach for four hours and he'd tag me and I'd go in and just back to back, just ministering nonstop, literally from Friday afternoon all the way to Monday evening. And God really granted us grace. God gave us strength and God used it all. We pray for His pleasure and for His glory. And uh, we're thankful to be back. But, I mean, I, I told my wife, uh, there's nowhere else I'd rather, and Marcus, I'm sure, agrees, that we'd rather minister in. We go abroad and minister in different places and different churches. But, I mean, we love Cornerstone. And it's my humble opinion, but like nobody um, loves the Word Loves preaching of the word, loves the church, loves ministry, like the dear folks here at, at, at Cornerstone Bible Church. And so, um, all the while ministering there, we loved it, we enjoyed it, but our hearts were here, and we long for home, we long for fellowship and ministry with you, and we're so thankful to be back. I talked to many of you already, and you welcomed me back, and many questions. First question was, so did you experience the holy kiss again? <laughs> So welcome back, Pastor James. Did you kiss somebody? <laughs> well, the question is like maybe. Yeah, that's the one older pastor. We got really close, and it was uh, cheek to cheek. If he turned, it would have been a kiss. But praise God, he didn't turn. Right? Um, that's the closest we got. It was very, very cold. Um, the joke there is. Uh, People there say, oh, I missed uh, summer this year because I overslept that day. <laughs> That's how short their summer is. Right, so that day, you got to be awake and enjoy it because if you oversleep, you miss out on the summer there. Um, but their hearts were warm. Um, uh, their hearts were warm for the gospel. And these pastors, dear, these dear church leaders, were uh, just a tremendous encouragement. I think Pastor Nikolai's wife... Her dad went to prison because of Christ, because of his faith in Christ. And he was in jail for 15 years. So she was three when he went into prison, and she was 18 when he came out. Uh, like how sad is that? But how just precious is that testimony uh, that they all held on to the cross in the midst of such uh, persecution and it looks like the government of Russia is uh, restricting the uh, Christians once again. There was a period of maybe 10 years. There was freedom of speech and freedom of religion and just freedom of ministry, ministering the gospel. But it's like that time is uh, that window of opportunity is closing and uh, pressure from the government and persecution is increasing alongside with uh, their partnership with the uh, Orthodox Church. So the church there is kind of bracing for hardships and persecutions to come. So we ask you humbly to uh, pray for them, remember them in your prayers, and uh, ask God that God would really um, 
sustain the faith of the believers there, not to cower back, not to shrink back in their faith, but to be all the more bold with the gospel of Christ, to live it out, to proclaim it to the people, to the lost in that world. I was uh, thrilled to hear from my wife that church uh, went well last week. Uh, Bob was gone for, to adopt Ella, and Mark and I are gone, but so, so encouraged that we have other men that we can lean upon to carry on the ministry. Uh, special thanks to Dan. Uh, my wife said that he made uh, Christ and the gospel beautiful, and if she was a non-Christian, she would become a Christian from hearing that message. That uh, uh, thrilled my heart that uh, God granted grace to Dan to preach Christ and preach him faithfully. And the word of God was held faithfully here in our dear church. Well, I um, wanted to go back to Second Timothy, but just for our time today, I wanted to uh, review a sermon that we studied a, passage that we studied many years ago. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 14, verse 1, I want to consider our Lord's um, command, exhortation to the disciples and how the gospel, the promise of the gospel cures troubled hearts, how the promise of Christ through the gospel of Christ is sufficient for all that ails us as believers. In John 14, we find a Savior in the most intimate fellowship with His disciples. Again, in John 14, it is Thursday evening. It is uh, the eve before the crucifixion. It is our Lord's last instructions before He is hung on the cross. In John 14 through 17, this is the original Bible Institute, the first ever seminary, if you will, where Christ gathers his disciples and he's done with public ministry. He focuses on private ministry for the future leaders of Christ's church. John 14 has a singular theme and verse 1 and verse 27 uh, gives us that singular theme. Verse 1, Christ said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he sandwiches it with verse 27b, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He's commanding them. Before he leaves, before he departs, he humbly pleads that they will not allow their hearts to be hardened filled with anxiety, be agitated, distressed, disturbed. Let not your hearts allow to be discouraged. You trust in God, trust also in me. It is in the passive voice, not middle, passive. Do not allow allow things in this world, allow external things to trouble your heart. And yet it is in the imperative mood, therefore it is a command. Now, in our study of the Gospel of John, we saw this word trouble many times in chapters 11 through 13. Our Lord's heart was troubled when He saw Mary weeping at the death of her brother. Our Lord's heart was troubled, distressed, discouraged, filled with sorrow and grief as He saw Mary weeping over the loss of her brother. 
in John 12, 27, when our Lord considered the cross and the, the wrath of God that He would endure, the separation from the Father, the agony, the spiritual agony of the cross, John 12, 27 tells us that His heart was troubled. <coughs> in the previous passage, John 13, 21, <coughs> when He thought about Judas and how He would betray Christ, our Lord's heart was troubled. With each step to the cross, anguish and sorrow increased in our Lord's soul. Yet here, He commanded the disciples to not allow their hearts to be troubled. Now, a brief pause here, for we find a precious lesson, a precious example for all faithful ministers of the cross. We see an insight into our Lord's character. He is being the good shepherd. A good shepherd ministers to God's people even while his own heart is melting within him. A faithful servant of God ministers God's word even while in him, within him, there is no strength, there is no power, there is no encouragement. The exhortation here is based on love of the most tender and self-forgetful character, the agonizing shepherd, heart is full of sorrow, and yet he is comforting others. And I contend that this is more difficult, much more difficult than washing feet. We marvel at John 13, his humility, his servanthood, and washing the feet of the disciples. Here in John 14 through 17, this is much more difficult. Preaching and teaching God's word, when one's own heart is breaking, is the most difficult task in the Christian service. It is the one distinguishing mark of a true servant of God. Charles Spurgeon said this, Everyone faces adversity and must find ways to persevere through the oppressing moments of life. Everyone must get up Go to work, take care of children, pay bills, generally keep life going while one's heart is breaking. But Spurgeon says, it is different with pastors. Not totally different, but it is different. Because the heart is the instrument of our vocation. Listen to what he said. Ours is more than mental work, it is heart work. The labor of our inmost soul So when our heart is breaking, we must labor with a broken instrument. Preaching is our main work. And preaching is not just mental work. It is difficult because it is heart work. So the question for us is not just, how do I keep on living when the marriage is blank, when the child is run away, when the finances don't reach, when the pews are bare and friends have forsaken me? No, the question for us It's much more than that. Not how do I keep on living. How do I keep on preaching. It is one thing to survive adversity. It is something very different. To keep on preaching Sunday after Sunday, month after month, when the heart is overwhelmed. This is what Spurgeon said to the students of his pastor's college. One crushing crushing stroke has sometimes laid the minister very low, 
the brother most relied upon has become a traitor. Ten years of toil do not take so much life out of us as we lose in a few hours by Demas the apostate. The question for the pastor is not merely how do you live through unremitting criticism, distrust, accusation, and abandonment. For the pastor, the question is how do you preach through it all? How does the preacher do heart work when his own heart is under siege and is ready to fall? Well, we find the answer here in John 14. We see from Christ's life how we are to keep on preaching, keep on teaching, keep on ministering when our hearts are filled with sorrow and grief. Our Lord knew the sufferings that lie ahead of Him. Our Lord knew that Judas would betray Him. Our Lord knew Peter would deny Him three times. Our Lord knew that all these disciples would abandon Him and forsake Him and deny Him. He knew above all that God the Father would abandon Him. That He would be utterly left alone on the cross. Yet while His heart was melting within Him, He turns to His disciples and He encourages them. He ministers to them. He shepherds their hearts. And He instructs them with the Word of God. And He tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. That's a mark of a true servant, is it not? Where we, in our internal monologue, we say, it's not about me. It's not about my needs, my wants. It's not about my heart. I need to be faithful to the Lord, the Father. And I need to be care. I need to love others and minister to them. This is the heart pursuit of every true servant of Christ. And that is what Christ models for us in John 14. Now, what is our Lord referring to? What is troubling the hearts of these disciples? We understand that trouble is common to all men. Life is one trouble after another. One discouragement. One thing that shakes us after another. Job 5, 7 said, as sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. That's the first book of the Bible, the first book written in the scriptures. And God says, life in this world is filled with trouble. Sure is day. As sure as sparks fly upward. Job 14, 1, a man's days are few, and those few days are full of trouble. Pastor Rallis said, heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank, class, or condition is exempt from it. No bars, bolts, or locks can keep out trouble from our lives. Every man, everyone, must drink many bitter cups in this world. Our Lord, though, He's not speaking of generic troubles that ails all mankind. He's speaking of unique troubles that assail and oppress the hearts of believers. Trouble that is limited only to the righteous. And from the context, we find three unique sources of trouble in the believer's heart. Three unique causes of discouragement, of sorrow, 
in the believer's heart. Now, first cause is physical separation from Christ. Physical separation from Christ. From the beginning, our Lord made it clear that his time with them was temporary. That it was not building a physical kingdom to be with them forever. He said in John 7.33, I will be with you a little longer and I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. John 8.21, I am going away. Where I am going, you cannot come. John 8.33, little while I am with you, you will seek me. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Every time Christ said this, our Lord, our, our disciples were, the disciples were saying to him, Lord, stop saying this. You're being so pessimistic. Like, think positive. Right? Be, be an encouragement. Tell us you're going to be with us forever. Don't talk about your death and you're leaving us. But he repeatedly prepared them and told them of his departure. When our Lord told Peter that he was leaving, Peter replied, Lord, why can I not follow you now? John 13, why can I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. We got to love Peter's heart here, right? Isn't this our heart? We long to be with Christ. We want to be with him. We don't want to be left behind. We don't want to be with Christ in heaven. We want to be with Christ in heaven. We don't want to be here. That's Paul's dilemma in Philippians. Right? I am torn between two options here. To be here, it's more ministry with you. But to be apart, depart and to be with Christ is better by far. His desire was, although I love you and I know you need my ministry, Christ in me is to live, but to die is to gain. I'd rather be with Christ. Christians long for His presence because the presence of Christ is a source of courage, hope, and strength. But His separation is a source of heartache. And I think that's how God um, deals with us in our sins. That sin separates us in our relationship with Christ. It doesn't rob us of our position in God's family. But relationally, it hardens our hearts. It it cauterizes our hearts. The nearness of God and Christ is not felt, not experienced. And that's God's way of disciplining us for our sins. And that causes trouble in us. The second cause of trouble in the heart of believers is the failure of other believers. Failure, sins of fellow Christians. Again, John 13 and 14 are directly connected. They're in the same room, same dialogue. It's seamless. 14.1 has no connecting word, no transition. It is all just one continual dialogue and teaching by the Lord. Look at John 13, 36 through 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? 
Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The disciples were disheartened, not just by the statement that the Lord was going to leave, but that their leader, their chief spokesperson, is going to deny the Lord, not once, twice, but three times. Without a doubt, this caused their hearts to sink. A unique source of sorrow in the heart of Christians. Is it not when we see uh, other believers stray away from Christ? When we see or hear for here that mature believers have compromised, they've fallen away. They've made decisions, public de- decisions, that make it clear that their priority is not Christ. They've wandered away from loving Christ and they've, they're now loving the world. This is, uh, a source of much sadness in my life, right? People have told me, especially my wife, ah, oh, you used to be so much funnier, right? Man, we're dating, you're a riot. And man, 10 years ago, man, it's so funny. Not so funny anymore, right? Many people in the church have said, yeah, James, you used to be more lighthearted, right? Just, you know, very full of life and humor. And, um, yeah, I think about, I think about it and I see pictures like 15, 10, 5 years ago. And it's largely due to this, seeing, um, like Christian leaders fall away, be disqualified from the ministry. They hear about men that I respect who love the Lord and they've been, they've shipwrecked their faith. Fellow pastors my age make horrendous mistakes, horrendous decisions, outright blatantly run after sin and blaspheme Christ and undermine the gospel. And when I see God's people here, um, just give up on their Christian fight, not really holding their own, not really running the race, like physically present, but the hearts are far away, their eyes are glazed over, they're not really listening, they're not really singing, they're not really praying, they're not really at our retreats or at our churches or at our Bible studies. They're physically there, but the hearts are far away. And then they slowly compromise and stray away and go into the world. After many years of this um, life and ministry, hard to be funny, hard to be lighthearted, hard to be um, even joyful in the midst of fellow Christians struggling in their walk with Christ. Right? I mean, because we love Christ, we absolutely love fellow Christians, and nothing, nothing pains Christians more then we find that a fellow Christian is not growing in Christ or no longer following Christ. Third John, verse 3. John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children in the faith are walking in the truth. John said, there is no greater joy in life 
and to hear that believers are doing well. That is true, and the opposite is also true. There is no greater sorrow in life. Nothing of greater disappointment or discouragement to hear or to know that Christians are not walking in the truth. This is um, the pain of the Christian life that belongs only to Christians and the pain to uh, ministers of Christ. You know, I don't, I don't know the pain of giving birth to a child. I, I don't know that pain. Uh, my wife and I talk about it and she tells me how painful right, giving birth to our three. Especially Elizabeth was the most difficult. And I need a frame of reference for pain. So the best that I can come up with is a low ankle sprain playing basketball. And guys, you know, if you ever sprained your ankle, that's very painful. That hurts so much. You're rolling around the ground and you want someone to just cut it off because it hurts so much. Is it like that? (laughs) Sir says, no, it's more painful, right? So I can't even come close. So physically, I don't know what it's like, but spiritually, I know the pain of giving birth because that's what Paul says in Galatians 4, 19 through 20. My little children... For whom I again, in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Paul equated the agony of ministering to believers who are not faithfully following Christ, who are not growing, who are toying with sin and considering straying away, equal to the pain of childbirth. The sins of those we love can be as painful as the labor of childbearing. Paul groaned over the imperfections of his spiritual children. This is why Christ prayed and cried over Jerusalem. He wept over it, Luke 19.41. This is why Ephesians 4.30, he is a person and when we sin, he grieves. The Holy Spirit weeps. He mourns over our sins. And this is what causes sorrow in our hearts. I'll ask you, what is your highest joy? Is it things? Or is it people? What is your greatest sorrow? Is it things? Or is it people? It's just like Jonah. God used him to deliver Nineveh. The whole city is repenting, following God. Then later on, God caused a little uh, plant to cover him from the heat. Next day, that plant dies. And Job is angry. Heart is full of sorrow. And he wants to die. And God said, Jonah, right? Do you care more about that plant? Then all these thousands of people who have repented. You have compassion for yourself. You love things. But Jonah, you don't love people. Well, what about us? Are we more like Jonah or more like Christ? Are we, is our greatest joy when believers, when people follow Christ, become believers, and when believers grow? And, is our greatest sorrow in life when believers are stagnant or they stray away. 
undoubtedly our joy must be in Christ and in the gospel, not in people. We are not content with the circumstances, but we're content in the circumstances. We must not allow circumstances to rob us of our of our commitment to God's sovereignty, how God is glorified in, in salvation and believers growing. And God is also glorified when people reject the gospel and when believers don't obey, God is still glorified. God is unmoved in His glory by decisions of people. So we are content. Our joy, our foundational joy is in the gospel. It's unchanging, unchanged in the sovereignty of God. And yet, Practically, do we have joy and sorrow over people? <clears throat> Third reason for the disciples' sorrow. And I believe the greatest reason for trouble in the heart of believers, more than the physical absence of Christ, more than the failings of other believers, the greatest reason for sorrow in their hearts, and in my heart, is our own failings, our own sins. Our own hard-heartedness towards Christ. Can you imagine the trouble that filled Peter's heart when he heard those words that Christ told him, you'll deny me three times. Peter in his pride, no, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm a man of conviction and courage and I am ready not to go to prison with you, but I'll die, die for you. So he rejected any kind of sense of sin in his flesh, that he was a weak believer because of his pride. And can you imagine when Peter was at the courtyard and he saw Christ being persecuted and a little servant girl comes to him and accuses him of being a follower of Christ and he denies it. Another servant girl says, your accent gives you away, denies it again. And the third people around says, yes, you are a follower of Jesus and he denied it a third time. He cursed himself. And he swore he's not a follower of Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And then their eyes met. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that they looked across the, the courtyard. Their eyes met. And Peter remembered what Christ said. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. And trouble, discouragement, grief, sorrow filled flooded his soul because of his own sins. Because of his denials. This is by far the greatest source of trouble in my heart. What? You know, preaching is hard for me. I I wish Christ was here and I wish all of you were perfect Christians. But the greatest source of trouble in my heart is I have to preach God's word and I'm a sinner. I, mean, I am a desperate sinner who sinned and is sinning and will sin again. And so my heart is melting within me, not so much because of Christ is not here, not so much because your hearts aren't growing, but largely because my own sinfulness, my own wicked, evil transgressions that I commit and the sins that are in my heart. I mean, I've blown it so many times. I've met the Lord in the courtyard of my denials countless times, too many times to, to, to consider, and I have to preach that Sunday, right? And so for my parents, 
my dad coming to Christ, my mom going to, going to Christ, going to church, is in spite of me. You know, like with kids, we have like this fear, we're going to be a bad example, and they're going to, you know, stray away from the church because we're a bad example. Well, I'm the opposite. I was a son. I'm the pastor. And they're my parents. And they see me, and my fear is, because of my poor example, my parents won't love Christ. And many times I blew it in my attitude, my speech, my conduct. I mean, I just blew it. The reason they are, they love Christ is not because of me, in spite of me. Right, you could ask my wife. Right? Somebody gives me uh, cheese on my burger, right? When I ordered without cheese, man, what happened? Right? James, you're a Christian, right? Now you're a pastor. You're a Christian, right? That's on the way to church. No, it's, it's not that bad, right? That troubles my heart. Sometimes people ask me, do you ever question your, my calling as a pastor? Oh, my, my calling as a pastor. Sometimes I question my calling as a Christian. Forget about pastorate. Forget about like, ministering in the church. Sometimes I question, am I a Christian? Because in my heart, there are things that I love, things that I desire, things that I long for that are not of Christ. And those desires are so strong. I wonder, man, do I love Christ more than my sins? Do I love Christ more than myself, more than my life? So forget about Christian ministry. Forget about my role as a pastor. Am I a Christian? That is the trouble that was assailing the hearts of the disciples. They were at the point of despair because they would be left behind. Because of the sins of fellow Christians and utmost because of their own sins. Well, what about you this morning? How's your heart? How's your heart? Is your heart breaking now because you want to be with Christ? Is your heart breaking now because someone close to you is not following Christ? We're straying away from Christ. Any of you, your soul is being overwhelmed with sorrow. Your heart is just breaking within yourself. Because you look at the mirror of God's word. And you see you are riddled with sin. If you say yes to any one of these, I have good news. No, I have great news. I have the cure that cures cures our hearts. Have the cure for troubled hearts. And that is faith in the promise of the gospel of Christ. It is the promise of Christ that alleviates us, heals our hearts, strengthens us, encourages us, empowers us. That's what Christ is saying in John 14.1. You believe in God. It's an indicative. Believe in me. It's an imperative. You already believe in the promises of the old covenant. God's promises. Now believe in my promises. And utmost. It's talking about John 14. But all of them are summaries of the gospel. Christ's promise of the gospel. You believe in God and his promises. Now Keep believing in the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
the undeserved remission of sins by His substitutionary death on the cross, whereby our faith alone saves us, removes that burden of sin, and allows us to have a living and vibrant relationship with God forever. Believe in that promise. And to illustrate this, let me read to you from Pilgrim's Progress. Great little book, a parable of the Christian faith, written by Pastor John Bunyan, a man who suffered for the Lord greatly. He was a nonconformist pastor in England. He would not stop preaching the gospel under the direct command of the king. So he was imprisoned for 12 years because he would not relent in preaching the gospel. He was separated from his wife with four children under ten, one of them who was blind. While in prison, 1678, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, it is the world's best-selling book, translated into over 200 languages. In the book, it is it recounts a journey of two pilgrims, hopeful and Christian, to the celestial city, to the city of God. A specific story details for us the trials that assail believers and the way for believers to escape them. Somewhat lengthy, but worthy of our attention. Christian and hopeful came upon a castle called Doubting Castle. The owner was Giant Despair, and they were sleeping on his grounds. Giant despair caught Christian and hopeful sleeping. Then with a grim and surly voice, he woke them, asked them where they came from, why they were on his grounds. They told him they were pilgrims. They had lost their way. The giant said, you have trespassed on my property. Therefore, you must go along with me. They were forced to go because he was stronger than they. The giant therefore drove them before him, put them in his castle into a very dark dungeon, nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. There they lay from Wednesday till Saturday night without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or or any questions of how they were doing. They were far from friends and acquaintances. Now, giant despair had a wife, and her name was Distrust. So when he was gone to bed, he told his wife that he had taken a couple of prisoners and cast him into his dungeon for trespassing on his grounds. He asked her what he should do to them. She counseled him that when he arose in the morning, he should beat them without mercy. So when he woke up, he took a large crab tree staff went down into the dungeon to them, and there he beat them as if they were dogs. Although they never gave him a word of distaste, he beat them fearfully in such sort that they were not able to help themselves or to turn them upon themselves from the floor. After this, he withdrew, left them to mourn under their distress, and all that day they spent the time in nothing but sighs and bitter cries. The next night, the wife, talking with her husband and understanding that they were still alive, she advised him to counsel these two pilgrims to end their own lives. So that next morning, he goes to them in a surly manner. Perceiving them to be in much pain, he told them that since they were never coming out of that place, that they were never, there was no hope for them ever escaping, 
that they should make an end to themselves, either with knife, rope, or poison? Why live in such pain and bitterness? He left them to consider what to do. The prisoners consulted between themselves whether it was best to take his counsel or not, and they thus began to discourse. Christian said, Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it is best to live this way or to die out of our own hands. My soul chooses strangulation rather than life. Grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Hopeful replied, Indeed, our present condition is dreadful and death will be far more welcome to me than this situation. But my brother, let us be patient. Endure a little while. Time may come and may give us a happy release. But let us not be our own murderers. With these words, Hopeful at present didn't moderate the mind of his brother. So they continued together in that dark day. And they're sad and difficult condition. Well, towards evening, the giant went down into the dungeon again and finding them alive, he fell into a grievous rage and told them that seeing that they had disobeyed his counsel, it would be worse with them if they had never been born. At this, they trembled greatly. On Saturday, about midnight, they began to pray and continued in prayer till almost break of day. Now a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, he broke out into a passionate speech. What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon, when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, good brother. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flung open with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. Then he went to the outward door that leads into the castle yard, and with this key opened that door also. After he went to the iron gate, for that must be opened too. But that lock went desperately hard. If the key did open it, they then thrust open the gate to make their escape with speed. And they were back on their journey to the celestial city. Though they had been imprisoned in the castle of doubt with a giant despair and wife distrust, this key called promise set them free. I resolve in my heart that when my heart is disheartened and discouraged because Christ is not here, when my heart is discouraged by other Christians, my heart is discouraged because of my own sins, I resolve to take out this key called promise, which is the gospel of Christ. One look at sin, ten looks at Christ, and I'll believe this promise, for it will set me free. What about you? What about you? Christ is not here, 
but Christ is here through the gospel. Every time we preach Christ and we preach His gospel, He is here. Every time you preach the message and the promise of Christ to your own heart, Christ is there. Every time you preach the gospel to others, Christ is in the midst. We have fellowship with God through the promise of the gospel. When you see other believers and they're not growing, they're going astray or they're just plateauing, their hearts are hardening. Know if they, if they are believers, know that the gospel is working. Pride is trusting in ourselves, trusting in our ministry, trusting in our efforts. Pride is trusting in our, in our works rather than the gospel. Pride is discontentment in the situation. Our faith must be God is working in their hearts. I don't see it. I can't tell. But I know by the word of God, God promised the gospel is working powerfully at work in that person's heart to conform them into the image of Christ. And then finally, and you see sin in your own life. Sin in your own heart dominating you. Time for a sober, honest evaluation. Second Corinthians 13.5 Examine yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith unless of course you fail the test. Take a long, cold, hard look at the mirror of God's word and consider if you are indeed a child of God. The questions are found in 1 John 1-4. through Anyone who loves God will continue to obey. If you say you have fellowship with light, yet walk in darkness, you are a liar. You are deceived. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is simply not in him. For all that is in the world, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. If anyone says he loves God, yet hates his fellow believer, Christian, he is deceived. Love of the Father is not in him. Anyone who loves God will not continue to sin, but repent. Change of direction. Heart of repentance. If you're not in the faith, repent. Trust in Christ. The sins that are in your life, are all signs pointing to you that you are not regenerate, you're not born again, that your faith is disingenuous, your faith is a fancy, it's a delusion, it's a dream, it's not real. So God has opened your eyes so that you might believe and repent and be saved. But if you find that your direction of life has changed, that God is producing fruit through the gospel in your life, and yet like all of us, you're still struggling with sin, that is when you take out that key again called the gospel and you believe it and you use that key to be released from the slavery of sin in the flesh. No one preached to yourself the gospel of Christ. That we're not saved because of our righteousness. That only Jesus Christ is a true Christian. All of us fall short of God's glory. We are Christians not because of our righteousness, 
but because of Christ's righteousness. And we are in His family, not because of our love for Christ, our love for God. We are in God's family because of God's love for us. That is the reason we're Christians. Not because we love God so much, but because God loves us so much. That's why adoption is so great. It's a picture of the gospel. Here is Bob and Sophie rescuing Ella from being an orphan. I mean, they're saving her twice. Saving her physically and saving her spiritually. And here is Ella crying. She's crying. She's knocking on the door. She wants to go out and live on the streets. But Ella is adopted into Han family, not because Ella loves Bob and Sophie, but because Bob and Sophie love her. And it is a Christian love. Bob was telling us how, in the sinfulness of this world, some adopt children in Korea, and after a few months or years, the child cries, right? They, they sin, they have temper tantrums, they break things, they return these children to Holt International. We don't want this child anymore. It's like the sinfulness of human hearts. It's like, you know, you know, it's not like a pair of pants, right? It's not a TV or a computer you return. But these sinful people return children, right? We hear about this in America. These people adopt kids from China and they enter into the foster system. These parents adopt them and they don't want them anymore. But that's not God. God doesn't have sin in Him. He doesn't adopt us and then find out, what? You're going to sin? You're going to be so callous towards me? You're going to be so unfaithful? You're going to deny me? I don't want you anymore. Right. I'm returning you to this world. If that were the case, as the Arminians would say, that's not good news. It's cruel. It is cruel if that was the gospel. But that is not the gospel. The gospel is we're in His family forever. Hebrews 13.1 Never, ever, ever will I leave you. Never, ever, ever will I forsake you. John 10, 27-30 My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I hold them in my hand. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hands. My Father and I are one. As our hearts are troubled by these things, may we hold on to the promise of the Gospel until the day of Christ. Let's pray. Much time has passed. and We'll close our service with this last prayer. I want to give you a moment just to consider the gospel, to consider its great promises, and to ask yourself whether you are living by the gospel of Christ, holding on to its promises, and may the gospel be the cure for your hearts. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. 
Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in His temple. Lord, this is our confidence. This is the source of our strength. It is Your promise. It is the gospel that You love and therefore we love. You save, therefore we are saved. You have forgiven, therefore our sins. Though great, though great in gravity against You and in number, have been washed away. We are white clean. Though our sins were red as crimson, they are white as snow. Because of your finished work on the cross. Lord, we pray. It is our heart's cry, O God. That the gospel that saved us will be the source of our sanctification, will be our life. And it will be with us all the way, each and every step on our journey to the city of God. We will not start with the gospel and now run this race based on our own strength, based on legalism or, or self-will or works of the flesh or religion. But we would run this race all because of your sufficient grace, the grace that saved us and the grace that sustains us to this day and the future grace that awaits us tomorrow until your return. Lord, we pray that the gospel will cure our troubled hearts and our hearts be filled with songs of praise to you, with gladness and joy. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. To Marcus and I, to Bob and his family, to every member here, we give you praise and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.